0: Welcome to the Retro Photo Film Podcast, where we break down 50 years of film and digital photography with a true renaissance man. Grab your favorite darkroom snack. It's time to talk photography with your host, Al Talene. My name is Al Talene, and I'm a photographer, a writer, an author, a chef, a baker, a reenactor, and an archival preservationist. And you're going, what the heck is an archival preservationist? That's a person who wants to preserve what is here for the future generations. I know how to repair old photographs and how to preserve those old photographs, where to keep them and what to do with them. I can even recognize periods of time from where the old photographs have come from. So that's what an archival preservationist is, a reenactor. That means that I go to mountain men rendezvous, to Civil War events, and to French and Indian War <laughs> events, and colonial war events, and anything that is reenacting of history, I love to go to and photograph. I wear the correct period clothing for the time, but I do not carry a gun, I carry a camera. And so when I go into a Civil War battle, i am got this big lombarding wooden tripod over my back, uh, covered in cloth, so that you won't recognize it as a camera tripod, even though it is from the late 1800s. The tripod is is just in case I need it, but most of it's all done shot by hand. And I have two cameras, a 35 millimeter and a two and a quarter camera, and that's what I shoot with on the field. I was born in Canada, raised there to a teenager, And my parents moved to United States. My parents are both Swedish. I do speak and read and write Swedish. I lived in Sweden for two and a half years. After that, I spent three years in the U.S. Army, which was a lot of fun during the Vietnam era. I was a strange phenomena, I guess, at the time. I was a chef for a two-star general. So what that meant was that I went to work every day in Tuxedo pants and cummerbund and white shirts and an officer's mess jacket. And I cooked, cleaned, and prepared food for the general and his family that was there. I mean, by cleaning, I mean by cleaning his house and doing all the chores around there, which even ended up being washing their clothes, ironing their clothes, and doing everything that the general's wife didn't really want to do. Even, for example, when she had a tea once a month, for all the incoming officers' wives, which had to be a lot because there were always like 50, 60 women who showed up. I had to prepare French pastries, Danish pastries, and coffee and tea and goodies like that, uh, and and regular cookies for that event. And when he had dignitaries come, like he had the Secretary of State come, and I would fix dinner for them. And when I would come to fix dinner, it would be like, we're tired of all the kind of White House cooking and crap, so why don't you just fix us a a normal kind of home-cooked meal? So I did. I would always cook some kind of casserole or something really fun and really nice. They really enjoyed it. So for two and a half years, that's what I did in the Army, serving a general and his family. But I also had orders for Vietnam, I think like seven times. When I went to work for the general, I was a E-2, which moved... Very high rank. And from the time I started then until I finished working for him at the end of my military career, which is only three years, I was an E6. Each time I would advance in rank, the general would come home from work and say, oh, I just promoted you today. You are this. So officially, here is your new rank. Here is this. So my uniform Never really had anything on it (laughs) except just the uniform because I advanced so rapidly and I never wore the uniform. But that's what I did in the Army. After the Army, I spent three, four years at the University of Utah getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. After I finished with that, I started a photo lab on campus for everybody to bring their photography to to be developed and printed and to do presentations and all kinds of things that didn't exist on campus before. And that led me to publishing a book on the history of the University of Utah, which was called Remembering. I didn't publish it, by the way. I mean, it was the university published it, and uh, I was just the photographer gatherer. It took me 10 years to gather all the necessary negatives. Is What I did was I'd find the photographs, take them to a, a friend of mine who had a makeshift lab that he'd set up and he'd do copy negatives on 4x5 film. So I have this vast amount of 4x5 negatives of all these different events and history of the university. And then I started teaching at the university and I taught for 18 and a half years. I taught photography in all kinds of stages, beginning and advanced and specialty stuff. Then I taught creative dramatics for children. And children's theater, puppetry, and you're going, what does puppetry have to do with <laughs> photography? Absolutely nothing. If I was going to get a master's degree, I thought I had to get something in it was fun where I didn't have to write thesis and do all these crazy things. So I did. So I became a puppeteer during the time that the Muppets were out, and it was fun. I spent years traveling around the state and a couple of other states nearby just doing puppet shows for anything and everything. During all of this time, I raised seven children, and uh, it was uh, quite a feat. I had four boys and three girls, and uh, unfortunately, they all were as wild and as crazy as I was when I was a child, so payback came back. During the 80s, I opened up a darkroom supply store where I sold uh, darkroom equipment and enlargers and papers and chemicals and everything that you needed to open up your own darkroom in your own house. I even built a darkroom in the back of the store so people could come in and use that if they needed to process or print their own pictures. I was selling a, quite a few photographs at a time from my collection of slides and transparencies, and I thought, this is a pretty lucrative business. So I started a stock agency in Salt Lake City, the first stock agency, and... Um, decided to have other people join me. So I solicited all kinds of people to come and give me their photographs and I would put those in a market with mine and sell them. And I did that for quite quite a few years, actually. But again, I needed something more. So what happened was I was at the Photo Marketing Association convention in Las Vegas and I saw this huge big machine which did one hour film processing. So you could have your film processed and printed in one hour, I was like, wow. So I thought, I gotta have one of these. So I came back and set up a campaign to try to find someone in Salt Lake City who had $100,000 and wanted to go into partnership with me and open up this first one hour photo film finishing processing in Salt Lake City. And I eventually did, and it worked. It was very successful. Of course, one hour film processing went all over the world. Mine was not that great because I contracted hepatitis and had to leave my photo business, my store, and everything behind. After the photographic store, I took a couple of years to just taught. And then uh, I got the bright idea to do some advertising for a couple of companies, and it worked out really well. I did their photography, wrote their ads and everything for them. I thought, oh, this is cool. So in 1986, I opened up my own ad agency and called it Old Mill Publishers. It ran really well because I had large accounts like Mrs. Fields and JB's Big Boys and New Skin International, which is still a very large company. Actually, I started with them. They were my first account. But anyway, it was a fun thing and I loved it. But advertising was a very fast-paced, moving, heart-wrenching business. And after a small, tiny heart attack type thing. The doctor said, you know what, if you stay this in here very long, you're going to die. So I eventually gave up the ad agency and <laughs> moved, moved on and turned it over to my son. And my son said, this is really not fun stuff. I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And so he went into business in something else. It was 1989. World was changing and uh, communism was falling in the communist bloc, the wall was coming down and the eastern bloc countries were kind of collapsing on how to go another way. And I decided that I needed to be there and see that collapse and photograph that. So in December, I started to put together a trip to those eastern bloc countries and setting it up, coordinating with the University of Utah so I could take my students with me and in March of 1990, we did. And we drove through uh, 11 countries in 14 days. Most of those were Eastern Bloc countries. And while we were in Yugoslavia, I met a very awesome couple. And that started on a whole other adventure, but for another time. I had prearranged to meet with university or college or Any kind of photo club within these different countries so that we could meet with them and exchange photographs and see what they were doing and see what kind of photography they did and what we did. And so we did. One of the funnest places was in Prague where we met. Prague had just fallen from the communists and still they were walking around with AK-47s and, and they were still very dangerous, but We could still walk around the streets, but we had to meet in secret with these people. And there were some from the university and some from photo clubs, because if they saw that they were openly meeting with Americans, then they would track them down still. 1991, I attended a mountain man rendezvous at Fort Bridger, Wyoming, and saw how incredible this rendezvous was and loved what I saw and pictures that I took were just a joy to my heart. So I decided this is something that I need to do and something that I would love to keep photographing. So that started my 30-year love affair with Mountain Men Rendezvous. And in that time of doing that, in 1995, I published a book Gibbs Smith Publishers here in Utah called Rendezvous Back to a Simpler Time. It was fun and enjoyable. Uh, It took me one year of traveling, actually about a year and a half of traveling on the road to Mountain Men Rendezvous all the way across the United States to gather all the material that I needed for it and nothing but photograph after photograph. It was all done on film. Nothing was digital at that time. So I would go out for a period of time, come back, process everything else, go back out, come back, process it, go back and shoot. And after that year and a half, it was published was a fun and very successful book. The publisher liked that book so much, they asked me, have you got another book we can do? And I said, well, there are Civil War events going on in the country all over, and so let's do one on the Civil War. So that started my next year and a half of traveling across the United States, mostly in the east and the south, to photograph the Civil War reenactments And that in itself was a complete education because I learned more about the Civil War in that year and a half than I ever would have learned in any books. Because it was all taught by people who had been researching for years. And everything was authentic to the bone. The same with with mountain men rendezvous. Nothing was out of place. Things like their tents that they stayed in, the clothing that they wore, the rifles that they shot, the shoes that they put on their feet, even to the socks. Everything was made exactly the way that it was during that time period. And so it was very enjoyable to be there and photograph and watch these reenactments. And when there was shooting going on, they were firing not at each other. They fired their weapons kind of up in the air. It looked like you were firing at someone, but they fired them up in the air because there was a blast of about... 14 inches of powder flash that would come out of the end of the gun. In 1998, I was approached by a colleague of mine to work with a company called Creating Keepsakes and create a archival guidelines for the scrapbooking industry. And I have been doing archival work since the 1980s and thought, okay, this would be a fun opportunity. So... I took that on with her, and in 1999, we published a book called S.O.S., Saving Our Scrapbooks, published by Creating Keepsakes magazine. And we then became the spokespersons for the archival industry in the scrapbook industry. We went to conventions and things like that for years teaching people how to preserve their scrapbooks so that they could be there for future generations and what materials to use in those scrapbooks so that they would last because the inks that they were using were not permanent inks. The adhesives that they were using were not permanent adhesives. So it was a a fun challenge and and a great campaign. We did that for quite a few years, enjoying that whole success in the scrapbook industry. The scrapbooking industry basically fell away, and but there are still small portions of it around. But it led me to the career path that I'm using now where I am a photo conservator and a book conservator. I repair old books and make boxes for those old books. And I repair old photographs. And now that the digital age has come about, I actually scan old photographs and repair those and bring them back to life. You have been listening to the Retro Photo Film Podcast. Follow Al on Instagram at Retro Photo Film to see all his latest photos and learn more about the stories behind the photos.